All right, we're heading into 1 Timothy chapter 5 together as a church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 19. Open up your Bibles, follow along, and um, let me begin by saying, pointing this out. When you put someone in charge of something, you want to know that they're going to do a good job, right? This is true in your home. Like, our oldest child is now a teenager, and we're allowing her to babysit meaning we're putting her in charge of the other two rugrats while we go away for a little while, and we expect her to do a good job, okay? Uh, So Lauren was away at the women's ministry retreat this weekend, right? So there were a couple times where I put Ellie in charge, and I'd try and call to see how things were going, and then she wouldn't pick up her phone. And so I'd text her, and she wouldn't answer the text. And so I'm just imagining in my head what's going on. I'm imagining Jared in the bathtub being like, watch how long I can hold my breath. (gasps) And I'm not there. So when I got home, I said, all right, new rule, new rule, new rule. If we let you babysit and you don't answer your phone, I give your babysitting money to your younger brother. She'll answer her phone. Trust me. She's a great babysitter. I just wanted to make sure that she was doing a good job, and she did. You want the person in charge to do a good job at home. You want the person in charge to do a good job in the government, right? Our elected officials, we expect them to do a good job when they get in office. You want people to do a good job also in the church. When they're installed as leaders, pastors, elders in the church, we expect them to do a good job. But what happens when somebody who's put in charge is doing an awful job? What happens when their walk with Christ is off track? What happens when they sin? How does the church deal with that when someone in charge is really messing up. We're going to learn about that today. The sermon is called, Elders Gone Wild. Elders Gone Wild. Let's pray, then we'll get into the Word together. Father, thank you that you challenge us to identify, install, and empower godly leaders. Praise you that we have those here. Help us to understand as a church what we're supposed to do when leaders go bad, or when someone claims leaders have gone bad. We pray for wisdom and discernment. By your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 3, we got a super long list of what elders were supposed to be like. Character qualifications. Here's who's supposed to be an elder. Here's what they're supposed to do. And then it's like as if God wasn't finished yet. He comes back to it in chapter 5. He's like, and another thing. And he starts talking to elders again. Last week, we talked about how, uh, as a church, we're supposed to encourage, build up, Um, and support our ministry leaders. I hope you're thinking of ways, if you haven't already done so, to bless your pastors, to encourage the elders of this church, to reach out to the deacons and the small group leaders and the flock leaders and thank them for what they're doing. Boy, the more you strengthen them and fill their tank, the less influence the enemy's going to have in their soul. We need them strong. We need them built up and encouraged. But what happens when they're going bad? Check out chapter 5, verse 19. It says this, It says, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, hey, before we get into dropping the hammer on an elder or leader who is sinning, first, 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 there's this cautionary verse. Don't even admit a charge unless you can substantiate it. Write this down. Number one, we have to protect leaders from false accusations. This has to be a church that protects and defends elders, pastors, and leaders from false accusations. It says here in verse 19, do not admit a charge. A charge would be someone 
who would challenge a pastor or elder, could easily be extended to a ministry leader, a small group leader, challenge their right to lead. This challenge can either be a challenge to the person, meaning there's a problem with the person, or it could be a challenge to their actions, what they're doing. They're a good guy, but what he's doing is not good. could also be a challenge to what the leader is teaching. Sure, nice guy, sure, serves well, but he's teaching false things. So the challenge, the charge, can come in different forms. But before we even get into how to deal with it, the Bible is saying you need to know what not to confront. You need to know how to spot false accusations and people who are just trying to stir up trouble because we have to protect our leaders from that. The Bible wants it to be clear. The church is not a place for critical spirits and false accusations to fill the air with negativity. The church is not a place where anyone can say anything about anyone and no one's going to sit them down and say, where did you hear that? Where are you getting this? Maybe you've been a part of a church where anyone can say anything and no one wants to sit down and say, all right, you need to like give us some proof or you need to give us some evidence or you have to tell us why you're saying this. All right? Maybe you've been a part of a church where whoever can say whatever and people are too afraid to actually confront the accusers. We have to protect leaders from false accusations because otherwise negative divisive people will become stronger and they will hurt the church. Lauren and I helped to launch a church uh, out in Lombard, the western suburbs. That was back in 2001. And the way it went down was there was this dying church, you know, a little Baptist church in Lombard. And then we were part of a group from Melrose Park that was going out. We were going to merge together, start a new church, and, uh, and it was going to be a church plant, right? So the senior pastor of our church traveled out to the western suburbs to meet some of these people from this church that we were going to merge with, all right? But he just kind of stopped by on a Saturday morning, and, and nobody really knew it was him. He just wanted to go out, shake some hands, and meet some people. All right, so this is their future pastor. They didn't really even know it. So he met this one guy in the stairwell, shook his hand, said, hey, I'm Scott, I'm, you know, uh, just excited to get to know you. And this guy started bashing the previous pastor, talking about his church negatively. And he's like, yeah, wasn't the last pastor I'll run off. Wasn't the last pastor I'll run off. He doesn't know this is his future pastor. Wasn't the last pastor I'll run off. And so this senior pastor is telling me more. I mean, why why would you do such a thing? And all right, this is in a church. I'm not even kidding you. The guy said, yeah, he was bringing in, you know, all those other types of people. Meaning non-white. And so this senior pastor is just looking at this guy like, did he really just say that? Plus, this senior pastor had adopted two African-American children. This guy doesn't know. He's talking to a senior pastor who has two African-American kids, and he just running his mouth off. And the senior, I love it, the senior pastor didn't even say, well, man, it's just thanks for sharing your thoughts. And, and then imagine his shock on day one when he meets his new senior pastor with his two kids sitting in the front row, and he just went on and on and on and on. Guess who left the church? And good riddance. Go to bless another church. You can't talk that way around here. All right? There are people who will run their mouth and they'll try and fill our church with false accusations, critical negativity, and we have to say we're not going to put up with that. Write this down. We have to develop a low tolerance for nonsense. We have to develop a low tolerance for nonsense. 
It says in verse 19, do not admit a charge, except. Do not admit a charge, except. Then it says, evidence of two or three witnesses. Evidence of two or three witnesses. So there has to be evidence and there has to be witnesses. This is just generally speaking how you figure out if a claim is true. All right? It's not the only way, but it's a good start. And if there's nothing to see, no evidence, and nobody seeing it, no witnesses, it's probably nonsense. This doesn't mean that if a you know, leader slaps a child but only one person saw it, he gets off scot-free because two or three witnesses. All right, this isn't like, this isn't like you know, a technicality that can be exploited. The point is there has to be at least some preliminary digging into the accusations. And if there's nothing to see and no one is seeing it, then you tell this person who's making accusations that's not true what you're saying about this leader. It's not true. No one else sees it. No one else is saying it. You need to stop making these accusations. All right? We have to develop a low tolerance for nonsense. If we, if we don't decide what isn't a problem, everything will be a problem. People who bring these accusations and they're not true or they're not valid or they're not founded or they're nonsense sometimes have to be told, you know what, that's not a problem we're going to deal with. Because if they just keep bringing it to the, and everybody takes it so seriously and we're going to spend tons of time talking about it, then guess what? It fills the whole air in the church with this frosty, cold, divisive feel because you just let these people go on and on and on and have their speeches and you're just like, it becomes cold. People know it. Church becomes unfriendly. Check this out. This is a freezing cold bench. And I think this is in Romania. They had this frost come through and then it froze. And Yikes! Imagine sitting down on that thing. And, and if we just let negative, critical people have their say and no one tells them that what they're doing is wrong, then the church becomes cold and unfriendly and critical. We have to develop a low tolerance for nonsense or we'll be an icy church. If there's no evidence and if there's no witnesses... Write this down. Then you have to say, I don't have ears for that. I don't have ears for that. The Bible says, do not admit the charge. This is like legalistic jargon here. So I'm going to court, people's court, Judge Wapner with my complaint. Whoa, 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 whoa. You can't come in here with that complaint. We're not even going to admit the charge in this court. What do you mean I can't come in there with my complaint? We're not even going to listen to it. No evidence, no witnesses, it's nonsense, get it out. We're not even going to talk about it. We don't have ears for that. This is very different. Okay, so if someone starts running down a leader to you, I'm not saying you need to stick up for them. Well, I think they're a good person. I'm telling you to say, I don't have ears for that. The Bible says, don't admit the charge. Don't admit the charge. Don't let it in. Okay? Do you know you can sin with your ears? You can sin with your hands, right? Punch somebody. You can sin with your eyes. You can sin with your mouth, telling a lie, shouting, biting someone. You can sin with your mouth, and you can sin with your ears. You want to know how you can sin with your ears? Watch. Check this out. I'm going to sin with my ears. Here we go. Catch that? What did I do? I'll do it again. Here I go. I'm listening to something I'm not supposed to be listening to. I'm letting someone go on and on and on, saying things I'm not supposed to be hearing. That's a sin. 
listening to slander and gossip. It's not, as, it's not the same kind of destruction as if you, you know, see Ron out in the parking lot chasing someone with a baseball bat because he's mad at him. Okay, that's harmful. You want to know what's just as harmful? I'll do it again. Just as harmful. Listening to things you're not supposed to listen to is sin. We have to protect leaders from false accusations. The Bible says we're supposed to develop a low tolerance for nonsense. No witnesses, no evidence. I'm not even listening to it. I'm not even going to admit that charge. I don't have ears for that. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We've talked about this before, but people who are launching false accusations, filling the church with nonsense, usually have unresolved baggage in their own heart. And the unforgiveness and the bitterness in their own heart is now being taken out on their current church. All right? And we have to guard our hearts and guard our friends against this downward spiral. Ephesians 4 lays it out pretty clearly. The downward spiral into negativity is this. It starts with bitterness, which is like there's a lemon in your mouth. You're sour towards a fellow Christian, and you don't do something constructive with that. Then it moves on to anger and wrath. Anger and wrath means you're boiling over. There's a boil in your heart when you're around that person, and you're not doing anything with it, right? Then comes clamor. Clamor is the megaphone where you're loud about it. That's clamor. And then because you went public and it was loud and people are talking, then comes slander. Slander is the cell phone when you pick up the phone and you start forming private factions to support your complaints. And then in the end comes malice. That's the knife where you're standing there. You've given yourself permission to injure a fellow believer physically or to injure their reputation. And many people carry these knives of malice around, and no one tells them to put it down. And so they launch false accusations. We have to guard our church against that. Well, let's say that we've done our due diligence. We've established that a pastor, an elder, perhaps a small group leader, a leader in a church is sinning. How does the church react then? Well, look at verse 20. It says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Write this down. Number one is protect leaders from false accusations. Number two is confront leaders who persist in sin. Confront leaders who persist in sin. All right, so the question first is, who do we confront? We confront leaders, elders, pastors, and those who the elders and pastors have put in charge, who are persisting in sin. The present tense, ongoing form of the verb means it's something that's currently happening and it indicates that it's been going on. And here, persist uh, because it's ongoing after you've established that there are two or three witnesses and there is evidence. It means the guy's kind of still holding on to it even though you've gone through this process of investigating it. Perhaps the two or three witnesses have told him about it and it's still happening. Okay, it's still happening. So he's clinging to his sin He's either blatantly just expecting everyone to let him continue to do it, or he's hiding it and he doesn't think anyone knows about it yet. In either case, we have to confront leaders who persist in sin. Leaders who bring sin into the church um, could fill the church with false teaching, could fill the church with bad living. In any case, the longer you let it go on, the worse the smell gets. 
You ever find something in your fridge that's been in there for way too long? The leftover, the Chinese leftovers in the way back of the fridge that no one has thrown out yet, and you open that fridge, and what happens? You're like, oh! So what do you do with it? You don't pull it out and give it to your kids for lunch because it's not healthy. You throw it away fast. And the longer sin is allowed to go on in the hearts of leaders, the longer that's allowed to go on, the, the more unhealthy it gets for the church. And there are many churches, sadly, who allow this sin of wrong things being taught or, or uh, sin being lived out in the lives of the leaders who allow it to go on, and, and they're eating out of that refrigerator every week. And their teenagers are eating out of that refrigerator every week. And their children are eating out of that refrigerator every week. And it creates sickness. So it has to be confronted. How do we do this? That's the next question that's answered here. Write this down. Got to do it publicly. Got to do it publicly. It says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. How? Publicly in the presence of all. Okay, now the truth people right now might chime in and say, Amen! Get them up in front of the church and get the flamethrower out and blow them away. (sighs) All right, this does not give us permission to throw somebody up to the wolves and completely just, I mean, demolish them. We don't get permission here to to execute cruel and unusual punishment when we catch a leader in sin. You want to hear a really cruel way to confront sin? Let's Let's say we find somebody in sin and we decide to confront it. And we say, please join us in the fellowship hall after the service. And then we lay this cake out and we put a pastor's name on it. Dear Pastor Jeremy, you're dead to us. What? All right, there are churches who have gone about confronting sin in unbiblical, hurtful ways. Galatians 6.1 is clear. The purpose of church discipline for leaders, too, is always restoration. All right? It's never about simply breaking a guy down and making him, you know, it's about restoring. Galatians 6.1 talks about if any of you is caught in sin, those who are mature should restore him gently. Okay? What this means is, We have to do it with grace, but it also means we have to do it with truth. Now, if you're a grace person, the thought of a pastor or leader or someone, you know, uh, their sin being exposed and brought to light and the church, you know, giving some sort of discipline to that person. If you're a grace person, you're like, oh, I can't even stomach the thought of that. It just this person was teaching us about love and forgiveness. And now it seems like people are so angry with them. Hey, listen, your voice is going to need to be heard if a leader is going through a disciplinary process. You're right. We need to keep the grace on. We need to keep it on high. Okay? But we have to tell the truth. We can't go easy on the person because they're a leader. We can't sweep it under the rug or overlook it or let it continue. If you're a truth person, you're like, man, based on what he did or what he said or who I thought he was, we need to just shut the grace off and just... Fire the bazooka of truth at this guy. He needs to get what's coming to him. Hey, we can't shut the grace off. We've got to, uh, when we put anyone through church discipline, we need to do it with grace and with truth. But with leaders, it has to be public. Even if you look through Matthew 18 at how church discipline is supposed to, you know, be enacted, there is supposed to be some public part of disciplining anyone in the congregation. The process is usually you go one-on-one to a person, 
tell them about their sin. If they won't listen, then you go and you bring a witness, okay, or a couple. And then if they won't listen, if you go with the witnesses, then you take it to the church, all right, meaning you involve the leaders of the church. And then if they won't even listen to the church, then you put them out of the church, okay? Uh, the reason you put them out of the church is because their plan is I keep my sin and I, I keep pretending to be a Christian. That plan is not allowed in Scripture. If after the process you decide, you know what, forget you guys, I'm keeping my sin, you can't come to church and pretend to be a Christian. The whole community is supposed to say, you're out of here until you get this squared away. And that is turning the person over to pain and separation from the blessings of being in the family. It's a huge wake-up call. Okay, the Apostle Paul phrases it in one verse like, I have handed him over to Satan. Okay, so there is now far less protection of what the enemy can do in that person's life. But there's also, thankfully, praise reports in the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, hey, he's repented. Welcome him back. And that's always the longing of our heart, especially with leaders and pastors. We confront them in sin. We do it publicly. Doing it publicly doesn't mean we have to share every single thing about the incident. Um, it's a case-by-case basis. So what would it sound like if an elder or pastor or leader sinned and we had to actually tell the church, what would that sound like? It depends. At the Main Harvest Campus, early on, one of their elders was busted for insurance fraud. He went to jail. All right? they, didn't, they didn't get up there and say, oh, we can't really tell you much, but he got in trouble. It's like in the papers. So they had to share a lot more. Okay? But there are other instances where they get up and they say, listen, um, you know, this pastor is no longer on staff. Uh, it, it was you know, an issue involving you know, uh, moral purity. Um, we've confronted him about it, and we feel like this is a disqualifier, so he's no longer on staff. But please, pray for him. Pray for his family. Uh, he's very open right now to going through a process of being healed. Um, but you know what? We're not going to share all the details with you because it would hurt the process of his restoration with his family right now. So keep them in prayer. And at that moment, some people are going to be like, I want to hear it all. Tell me everything. See, but we can't make you feel better about the situation without making you feel worse about the person. And church discipline is not about tearing a guy down. It's about making it known. We, the fear is this. The fear is that there's this little private meeting and then someone comes up and they're like, you know what, he's good, we talked about it. And everyone else is like, talked about what? And what do you mean is he good? Like, did you really deal with it? So as long as the leaders get up and say, we dealt with it, here's the plan, here's his response, you don't need all the information, okay? So it's a case-by-case basis, but the Bible calls us to do it publicly. Okay, and it gives us a reason why. A couple reasons why. Write this down. So others stand in fear. The Bible says do it, do it publicly, so others stand in fear. It says so that the rest may stand in fear. Um, We have to make sure we understand what the New Testament says about sin in the church. All right? The Bible says this. God will judge sin in his church. We have to get our theology screwed on straight here. Because some people say this is a judgment-free zone. God has put my sins as far away from him as the east is from the west. True. The penalty of your sin is canceled. The power of sin is broken. But the presence of sin isn't, isn't done away with until you go on to glory. Because sin is still present, because it's still attractive to believers... From now until the day you go on, there's going to be this process where God gives you victory over sin. But it's a fight, okay? It says that these passions uh, wage war against your soul. 
And if a Christian lets sin invade the heart, refuses to let other people help get them out of it, if they're entrenched in it, then God says that it's up to the church to tell them you can't bring that sin in, love that sin, and pretend to be a Christian. You can't do it. Sin has to be confronted in the church. Why? So that those who see the sin confronted stand in fear. Because God's judgment is horrible. God wants His church to fear His judgment. There are many promises in the New Testament that God God will judge sexual sin in the church. God will judge deception in the church. Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them? They lied about an offering. They said that they were being far more generous than they were. They walked up the aisle and God killed them in church to make an example of them. The ushers carried them out one at a time because God wants his people to be terrified about sin. Thankfully, that's not his only method of parenting his spiritual children, all right? He has many other ways, but the point is supposed to be clear. God wants us to be afraid of his judgment. There are many reasons why we do what is right. Fear is a good one. Love is better, loving Christ and loving the Lord and wanting to do what's best so that because you love him, that's a better motive. But you know what? Fear will do. Fear will do. If you're only doing what is right because you're afraid of the consequences of judgment, Amen, the Bible says to you. Others are supposed to stand in fear. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Even the world is supposed to be the way that the church roots sin out of its presence and be afraid. Wow, you guys don't put up with that stuff? Man, wow. Why? Because God doesn't put up with that. I thought your God was loving it. He is. He is. And one of the ways he loves us is by refusing to let us go on in sin. We have to confront sin because it reveals who's a true and a false believer. It also brings about a rebuke to a wandering child of God. Fear does mean fear, but it should involve a process. It should involve grace and truth. Okay, so first, we have to protect leaders from false accusations by developing a low tolerance for nonsense and saying, I don't have ears for that. Second, we have to confront leaders who persist in sin. We have to do it publicly so others stand in fear. And the last sub-point there is this, because heaven is watching. Because heaven is watching. He says in verse 21, in the presence of God, this is a courtroom scene. He's charging him. Check this out. Here's a courtroom. Here's a courtroom. So Paul's like exhorting Timothy. He says, in the presence of God, so now God's on the bench, and of Christ Jesus, so now Jesus is there too, and of the elect angels, so now the courtroom is filled with angels. What are we all here for? What are we all here for? Paul's going to tell Timothy something. It's going to be awesome. Listen. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Timothy's a guy who's tempted to be intimidated. He's tempted to let the older, wiser, wealthier men to take over or to get away with things. And Paul's like, listen, heaven is watching this. You need to spring into action and take care of it. Do this without, it says prejudging. Prejudging means leaping to a conclusion before you know the fact. So don't prejudge, okay? And do nothing from partiality, meaning don't withhold judgment when you have to judge. These are two really huge words because sometimes Christians are like, you know, leap right to truth and be like, yeah, that guy is good for nothing, deserves to be out of there. That's called prejudging. 
There isn't even a process yet. And it says do nothing from partiality. Partiality means like, you know what? We should just withhold following through on this and just who are we to judge? We shouldn't really do anything. That's partiality. You're letting them get away with it. And Christians who think that there's no place for judging the conduct of other Christians in the church haven't read their Bible here. Heaven is watching. Heaven is watching. The third point is this. We must appoint godly leaders. We must appoint godly leaders. Now our eyes are being directed towards the um, interview process of selecting leaders. We could go so wrong if we select the wrong leaders. And we have to appoint godly leaders. Look at verse 22. It says in verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Hasty in the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands is kind of an expression that means installing someone into being an elder. Don't do it quickly. Why would Timothy do it quickly? couple reasons. Maybe he doesn't want to deal with the people who are starting trouble. And there's a truth guy storming in. You know what? You make me a leader and I'm going to bust some skulls. And Timothy's like, all right, fine. Here, you're a leader. Go take care of it. Paul's like, no, no. Okay. Don't lay hands on a guy who thinks he's going to fix everything. Don't do it quickly. And it says, it says, don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Meaning, if you aren't careful in who you make a leader, if, if you're considering, you know, so, Mr. So-and-so, and you know there's some defects, but you make him a leader anyways, guess what's going to happen? He's going to pollute your faith. Jot this down. Point godly leaders, because ungodly leaders will pollute your faith. You've got to keep yourself pure by making sure you surround yourself with godly leaders. Godly leaders. As a church, we can't let influential people lead us into sin. We can't let strong personalities dictate what kind of disciples we're making. Doesn't matter if they're big givers. Doesn't matter if they're well-educated. Doesn't matter if they're articulate. Okay, if there's glaring character defects, we have to make sure we don't give them a pass. We don't make them leaders too quickly. Have you, uh, have you ever seen the Chicago River when they you know, diet green for St. Patrick's Day. Have you seen that before? Did you? They just did it. They just did it this last weekend. Anybody go see it this last weekend? Anybody go see it for St. Patrick's Day? So, um, so do you know how they do it? Do you know how they do it? There's three guys, three guys, and they go out in boats and they dump like 40 pounds of powder into the river. Three guys, that's all it takes. And they dump it in. And then there's another three guys who follow them and mix it up. So three guys dumping, Three guys mixing, whole river changes color. Changes the whole color of the river. Um, in the same way, in the church, there can be a small number of people who start dumping terrible things into the, into the river, and then before you know it, the whole church is filled with this sin. Right? Just a couple dumping and a couple mixing, and that's all it takes. And they're polluting, they're polluting, the whole church. We have to be careful. We have to guard ourselves against that. I've heard it said before, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. But you know what's true in the church? Show me your elders and I'll show you your future. Because as the elders are, so the church will be. And the church will make disciples that act like, look like, talk like, sound like the elders. The same mannerisms and convictions will spread to the congregation. So we have to make sure that we appoint godly leaders 
because ungodly leaders will pollute your faith. Um, Also, write this down. We have to appoint godly leaders by giving God time to reveal the heart. By giving God time to reveal the heart. It says here uh, in verse 23, and this is really funny, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Scholars struggle to find out why that verse is in the Bible right there. I actually think it's pretty obvious why it's in the Bible right there. Paul was just like, I charge you in front of God to get this stuff sorted out. Hey, how's your ulcer? Time to deal with this mess. Drink a little wine and then go fix the problems. And he's also telling the church in kind of this indirect way, like the church in Ephesus probably like, our pastor has stomach aches? Why? It's you. You're driving him to the bottle. This is so perfectly timed. Keep yourself pure. Drink a little wine. Your stomach ache isn't going away. Verse 24. Continuing on. It's just honest about the effects of unresolved conflict in the church. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. What does that mean? It means some guys are obvious in their sin. Their sins you know, are, are glaringly obvious, going ahead of, reaching God at, in judgment ahead of them, waiting for them there, because everyone knows about it and it's being not confronted. But it says the sins of others appear later. So these are the fakes. These are the frauds. These are the... These are those who are putting on a good show, but their sins have not come to light yet. Some leaders expect to sin in broad daylight, pastors, elders, and they just expect the church to deal with it. You don't like it? Get out of here. And the bigger the church gets, the richer the church gets, the easier it is for the people all around the pastor to just accept it, and no one can confront him on it. That's sick. That's sick. But the sins of others appear later. There's fakes. There's those men who, oh man, yeah, the camera's on and they're perfect and nice and godly, but behind the scenes, they are hiding a world of depravity. It'll appear. It'll appear. Rest assured, it says, so also good works are conspicuous, which means sometimes you see a guy's, uh, the fullness of a guy's good nature. It says, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden, which means God will get the good of a guy out there. God will promote what's good in a good man. It also means that God will judge what's bad in a bad man. God's judgment will fall on the Christian leader who sins without repentance. Ungodly leaders will pollute our faith. And so we have to appoint godly leaders. The second sub-point there is by giving God time to reveal the heart. We have to give God time to reveal the heart. Obviously, if a leader has a major character flaw and everyone sees it and it's being tolerated, God promises judgment will come and the Bible warns Timothy, don't make that man an elder or don't let him continue to be an elder. But when they're considering who to appoint as a leader, the challenge here is you have to make sure you don't move too quickly. You've got to give time for the heart to be revealed. All right. Now for us as a church, when we interview elders, when we interview deacons, when we interview future pastors who we're going to hire. We've got a very thorough process. They've got to fill out a written application. They've got to turn it in. They go through three personal interviews. I do them all right now. 
And they have to sit with me or Skype, phone, in person, three interviews. And, uh, and then after I have my chance to interview them, I'll go to the elders and I'll make a recommendation. And I'll say, hey, you know, I went three interviews with this guy and I can recommend him for being an elder. Or, you know, I recommend this is who we hire. But at the beginning of that process, I always say the same thing. I say, listen, I've looked at your resume, I've read your application, but this is not an audition. Um, it's God detection. I want God to reveal to us what his will is. And just so you know, you can hit a grand slam and impress me with your resume and your experience and whatever, but if God is revealing to me that you're not the one, then we're not going to hire you. And that instantly makes them feel like, how, how does that work? But I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, I can't see the heart. I want you to bring to light what is hidden into darkness, whether good or bad. And in addition to what I'm seeing, I want you to show me the true person. And sometimes I'll tell the Lord, Lord, I mean, you really need to talk me out of this guy because I'm pretty excited about him. Or I'll tell the Lord, you really need to talk me into this guy because I'm not yet excited about him. This is the dialogue I have with the Lord as we make decisions about elders and pastors. And God has always proved faithful. Um, When we were trying to hire a pastor, uh, you know, when Pastor Brandon wasn't here yet, um, there were three guys left in the interview process, Pastor Brandon and two other guys. And, and honestly, at the tail end of the interview stage, all three of them were good. And I said, Lord, I don't know which three to pick. I mean, Brandon seems like the front runner, but um, honestly, any of them seemed like they could do the job. And in the last interview, it's, it's the most direct and invasive part of the interview. I ask questions and there's no holds barred. I'll just throw a question like, have you ever cheated on your wife? I'll just surprise them. I'll just come right from the side and just ask them a question and then watch how they react, right? But in the last interview, I always ask about purity. How are your eyes? Are you winning the battle with porn, et cetera, et cetera? Tell me how God has given you victory over this, how he's... And uh, all three of them came through that interview, and so I was still confused. Well, then a couple days after, I got an email from one of the guys, and he said, uh, Pastor Ryan, I just want you to know I lied during the interview I'm really battling with pornography. I don't have victory in that area yet, and I'm just going to withdraw right now because I know I need to go get help for that. Lied. Spirit. Tell the truth. Got it out of him. Withdrew his application. Now we're down to two. A day later, phone call. Pastor Ryan, really sorry. Just want you to know I lied during the interview. Really struggling with porn, losing that battle, and I'm just going to withdraw. I, I, you know, I'm not supposed to be a pastor right now. And then there was one. And Pastor Brandon was so amazing, did so much awesome stuff here, went off to plant a church. But listen, either one of those guys, if we weren't careful, could have gotten the job. And then later, 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 come, you lied? It was God who got that out. I couldn't have, I could have seen that. So we trust the Lord to guide the process, and we give him time, time to reveal the heart. And whether we're gaga about a guy or skeptical, we let the Lord speak. Even when I bring it to the elders, our elders operate on consensus. So if I come and I say, hey, I think we should hire Pastor Brandon. Uh, he's the front runner, and it just seems like God's got his hand on this guy. And, and, so, and then I walk away. The elders are free to call him, interview him, spend 30 minutes on the phone with him, and if any elder has any red flags, deals off. Doesn't matter if I spent eight hours talking to him already. If any elder... God might want to show me, hey, even when you think you've got it figured out, I'm going to use one elder to say, no, I surrender to that, okay? 
Same thing as we're installing elders or deacons. If any elder is just like, I can't put my finger on it, but I just don't think that it's right yet. We need to do a little more homework. We've dug stuff up with elder candidates and deacon candidates, things we've had to resolve before we install them. The Lord is faithful in revealing the heart if the church is listening. Heaven is watching. We have to appoint godly leaders. Ungodly leaders will pollute the church. We have to give God time to reveal the heart. And he will do it. It says that the Lord will also reveal what is good. This is encouraging. It's an encouraging note. Pastors who are serving well, elders who are loving the flock, God's going to show it. God's going to vindicate them. God's going to show the church the good that's coming from them. Leaders who deserve to be put in the place of elder and and who are, God is raising them up to do good work. God's going to show it. God's going to show it. He's going to get even the good that people can't see. He's going to get it out there. He's going to make sure people know the goodness of the leaders in his church. As we close out here, let me just end with the same challenge I ended with last week. Our leaders, our pastors, our elders need your encouragement. Last week we talked about, you know, giving double honor to those who are in leadership. And the elders serve tirelessly and they need us to encourage them, to strengthen them, to support them so that, so that they're not weak and discouraged, Right? We want to make sure they're strong. The the ministry leaders who the elders put in charge of ministry teams, they need your encouragement. They need your support. They need to be built up so that they feel loved and supported and protected. And hey, as we rally behind these leaders, and as we make sure that we hold the line of truth, then we are going to fulfill the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Let's do this right now. I want to give you a chance to just pick a leader, a pastor, an elder in this church Take time right now and pray for that person, will you? Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads and pick a, pick a leader who's in your life, who's in this church, and just right now go to work lifting that leader up, lifting that pastor up. Pray right now for them. Pray for their family. Pray for their ministry. Pray for their own walk with the Lord. Pray for their wellness. Pray for their stamina and their endurance. Pray that they win their battles with temptation. Pray that they receive direction for tough decisions. Father, we just lift our leaders up to you and um, I'm so grateful for our elders right now and for the maturity and love and unity they display for our church. I do pray for them. I just ask your blessing upon Ken Henley as he leads and pours out his soul every week and 
meets with people and grows our small group ministry. Fill him with strength and joy. Give his family health and wellness. Pray, O Lord, for Mike Brooks, for Karen, that your blessing would be upon them. You would bring them wellness in every way. Pray that you would help him, Lord, to be strong in spirit, to be patient in endurance and affliction. Pray that you would give him a stronger grip on your word than he's ever had before. Use him, Lord, to bless many people. Just pray for Mike Kiowski and his family, asking that you would give him tremendous guidance and provision as he follows you. Pray for John Herzog, for Lorelai, just asking that you would bless them in their faithful service to you. Pray for Ken and Sharon. Just ask for your blessing upon them as they lead and guide the church. And as Ken in particular helps to properly steward the building and help those in need. We ask for all of our small group leaders and ministry leaders to be lifted up, Lord, to be filled with strength and joy, to make the church loving, to make the church, oh Lord, filled with truth and grace. And we ask that you would raise up new leaders, new pastors. Bless Pastor Mark, Lord, filling him with your spirit, helping him to be the father, the husband you've called him to be as he continues to bless us as a church. And fill Jeremy with your spirit, his family with your love and grace. Lord, we lift these leaders up to you and we ask your blessing of strength and self-control and power to be upon them. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Shepherd. Amen.